Gracious and heavenly Father, you have shown us your great love for your Son. You've shown us the great love the Son has for you. We know the Holy Spirit as well. We ask, Father, that you would bless us this morning with an understanding of the depth of your love within the Holy Triune God. And that love that you've expressed to us, fallen man, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Show us this love that is so divine that it demands everything from us, our entire life. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, Lord, that we might worship you properly in spirit and in truth as we hear your holy word. By your grace, enable us to understand it. By your power, Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray we would submit to it. And as a people set apart to bring you honor and glory, make us holy. Purify our hearts and minds this morning, I pray, that we might worship you rightly. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. There are many songs that we can sing before a sermon. That one in particular, I imagine every man in here wanted to stand up and say, I will preach today. And you could have. You could have. Your Bibles, if you have one, please open up to John chapter 5. If you do not have one and you would like one, um, raise your hand and I'll, I'll have someone come by and get you a Bible if you don't have one. Okay? We have some extras. In John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 29. We're going to go back a couple verses. We left off last week at 18, but we'll, we'll hit a couple. We are we're hitting a point in the gospel testimony where Christ is unveiling himself. And he says things in these verses which are, are so beyond belief, if he's not God, that their response in wanting to kill him makes perfect sense. And so... My hope this morning is that as we pick up this story where we left off last week, you will see Christ more clearly today. And what a glorious thing. If you leave here knowing Christ better, loving Christ more, desiring to follow Him more. If you were here with us last week, you remember that Christ had gone to the pool at Bethesda and He had healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years. And he did this great work on the Sabbath day. And if you remember what He said to the man, He said, take up your bed and walk. And he did this because he wants to reveal himself as God. But he also did this to challenge the the false rabbinical Judaism that had made its way into um, his people. Jesus said to the Jews in verse 17, My father is working until now and I am working. Because they accused him of breaking the Sabbath law. And he says, listen, if I'm breaking the Sabbath law, then my father's breaking the Sabbath law. To which they responded in verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his God his own father, making himself equal with God. They got the claim. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. When he said, my father is working until now and I am working, he's not only saying that God the Father is His Father, and He is God too. He's saying there's such a radical unity between me and my Father, between the Father and the Son. Such a radical unity. 
that if you were to begin to understand it, first of all, they, they would dismiss it outright. They would not believe it. But if they were to begin to understand it, they'd actually start to worship Jesus as they should have. The claim that he makes is either, if it's false, it's blasphemy, and according to the law, he should be put to death. Or it's true, and he's God, and therefore he should be worshipped. And those are the only two right responses. Blasphemy and death, or God, Jesus Christ, and a worship of him completely. And so last week, if the central theme last week was to to expose the the lies of rabbinical Judaism and false religion. The central theme today is the deity of Jesus Christ and the unity between the Son and the Father, the incredible union that they have in their love for one another. And and what we'll see as it begins to develop here, you have God the Father and God the Son, two eternally distinct persons forever and ever, and yet one. Distinct and one. So let's do that. Let's see if we can understand Jesus better. Let's see if we can understand this relationship between the Father and the Son better. And let's see if we can make some sense of what does that, how does that impact us? How does that change the way we live and walk every day? And I want to do that by looking at three things. One, how the Son obeys the Father, number one. Number two, how the Father honors the Son. And number three, how the Son resurrects the dead. How the Son obeys the Father, how the Father honors the Son, and how the Son resurrects the dead. All right. Are you ready? Okay, very good. Point number one, how the Son obeys the Father. J.C. Ryle, he said this of this passage, and and I I would not have agreed with this statement that he's making until after I studied it, but I want you to hear it as well before we look into this passage. He writes, nowhere else in the Gospels, anytime you say that, it's a big statement, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and proof of his Messiahship as we find here in this discourse. That's a sweeping statement. And if that's true, that means we should listen closely. We should want to know exactly what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus said to the Jews in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working, he was revealing himself to be God and the work of the Father and the Son, and we can say the Holy Spirit, to be the same. They were all doing the same work. They were all engaged in the same mission. Look at verse 19 and following. Jesus said to them, they, they, they accused him of, of being equal to God. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. And so, at this stage in the ministry of our Lord, we're about a year and a half in, depending upon your timeline. He's taught eternal truths that no one has ever taught. He's taught like no other man. He, he did the turning of the water into wine. He's performed miracles in Judea and in Galilee, several during the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He healed the, the royal servant's son who was dying. He made this 38-year lame man walk. All these acts of mercy and kindness on the Sabbath, off the Sabbath. We had this glorious testimony of Christ at the baptism where the Father reveals that this is his son with whom he is well pleased. We have these Samaritans in Sychar all declaring him to be the Savior of the world. All of this great work leading up to this particular dialogue, God the Father says, it's exactly what I want, 
It's exactly what I've enabled my son to do. Everything Jesus has done is exactly what God the Father has wanted and enabled him to do, and it's only what Jesus would do because he won't do anything that he doesn't see the Father doing. Look at verse 19 again. Truly, truly, there's that statement again. Listen up, verily, verily, amen, amen. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus does the exact opposite of backing away. They say to him, you're making yourself equal to God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're right. That's an extreme statement. Let me back up. He does the exact opposite. He says, truly, truly, I'll say to you, I will tell you how equal we are. The statement is so weighty. Christ says, not only do I do only what the Father does, I cannot do anything unless the Father shows me. That's how bound they are. That's how tied they are. Their unity and their communion, I want you to listen, is so uninterrupted. The Son can do nothing unless the Father himself shows him, and the Son will do nothing unless the Father himself wants him to. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so on the one hand, you have this incredible obedience. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who created the entire, all that is seen and unseen, he, he submits himself completely in obedience to the Father. And at the same time, he's saying, I'm God. You say, well, how do we get that? How do we know that he's God from this statement? Only someone who has the power and the authority and the knowledge of God can do the work of God. Would you not agree? If Jesus Christ is doing the work of God, and only the work that God the Father can do, then that means that Jesus Christ is also God. Otherwise, he could not do the Father's work. Only God can do God's work. They understood exactly. They, they, the Jews got it. They said, oh, if you're saying you can do the Father's work, then you're claiming to be God. Therefore, we're going to kill you. And that's what they wanted to do, and that's what they immediately, that's what they eventually do. What's amazing, again, Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he adds fuel to the fire. Look at verse 20. He says, for the Father loves the Son. You want to talk about a cutting remark to them? He's saying, my Father loves me and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus is able to do exactly what the Father wants him to do. And I want you to listen to this. This is a hard thing to teach because it took me so long to get it in and I, and I, don't, wanna, I don't wanna not communicate this well. Jesus Christ was able to do exactly what the Father showed him to do, wanted him to do, because there was perfect unity. There was a perfect intimacy, a perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus sees and the Father shows him, present tense, everything And the Father does this. Why? He does it because He loves the Son. He does it because He loves Jesus. He loves Him continually. He loves Him passionately. In fact, in the Greek, the word that we use between Father and Son and and Son and Father is agape. And it is a godly, divine love. And that's not the word that's used for love here in the Greek. It's phileo, which you know. Phileo, which is a... Uh, an intimacy, a a companionship, um, a proximity, a closeness, a compassion for another person that um, in the context of the relationship between God the Father is so deep and so intimate that Jesus is saying, I can't do anything other than what my Father wants me to do because I love him so much. That's how much I love him. 
father's love for the son and the son's love for the father is such, listen, it is such that it requires complete transparency. They both know each other perfectly all the way through. Nothing's hidden. Nothing's hidden in that relationship. And, and we know that in order to be really intimate with someone, you can't have stuff hidden. Right? I mean, you've had relationships with people and they've got something hidden over here and you know them and you're close to them, but that intimacy is blocked by what is secret and what is unknown. And Christ knows the Father and the Father knows the Son. They know everything about everything pertaining to their relationship. And therefore, there's what? There's not just close intimacy, there's perfect intimacy. It's perfect. It's perfect. And that means that Christ on earth, reveals his Father perfectly to us. When they saw Christ, they saw the Father. And he could say that because they were truly one. I mean, we say that as good Trinitarians, right? We say three eternal, eternally distinct persons and one in substance. And we say, yes, but we're talking about unity here and intimacy here. Unlike any relationship between any two men, two people, a man and a woman, And that means that our Lord's entire life, every thought, every word, every action did not proceed from his own motivation, but from that which the Father desired. And he desired to do that which the Father desired because he loved him. He loved him with a deep, compassionate, everlasting, eternal love. So that means their love for one another, and this is what's so amazing, this is what hit me, so I don't want you to lose this, listen up. It's their love for one another that reveals himself to man. The only reason that we know God the Father and the only reason we have Jesus Christ as our Savior is because God the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And you say, well, aren't we loved in that? Yes, we are. We'll get there. But the foundation of God showing himself, his character and nature, of Christ coming and dying for our sins, the foundation of that is the love within the Godhead, Father to Son, Son to Father, Holy Spirit to both. This stuff is just enough to blow your mind. It's so incredible. It's so deep. When Jesus said to Philip in John 14, if you have seen me, what? You have seen the Father. And he didn't mean just kind of the Father. He meant if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because the Father and I are truly one. In fact, so eager, so eager is God the Father to reveal himself to fallen man. Look at what he says in, in the latter part of verse 20. So eager is God the Father wants to reveal himself through Christ. He says this, Greater works than these will he, the Father, show him the Son so that you may marvel. I mean, the Jews were, they were marveling. God, Christ has done some amazing things. And Jesus is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> you haven't seen anything. My Father is so eager to reveal himself to you, the things he's going to do to me and through me, You will marvel. He's going to give Christ the power of life to make people alive physically and spiritually. He's going to give Jesus Christ the power to judge all people. So many signs and so many wonders. Nothing compared to what they're going to see. They were already confused in disbelief. And he's saying, if you're unable to make sense of what I've done thus far, then these great works that my Father's going to do through me to show himself, to show his love for me, will leave you utterly flummoxed. You're done. But Christ would pray for them that by grace they'd understand, that they would actually get it. So what are these greater works? Let's look at the second point. 
Number two, how the Father honors the Son. How the Father honors the Son. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And then another truly, truly, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So this first sign, this first greater sign that is infinitely greater Infinitely, and we can say that, that anything Jesus has already thus displayed is this power of Jesus Christ being able to raise people from the dead. That's a pretty amazing power. Would you not agree? I dare say if some of you had that power, you would have raised a few of your loved ones from the dead. You said, oh, no, you're not going yet, and Brent, you bring them back. This is an amazing power that Christ can raise people, not only physically, but spiritually from the dead. This is the sole work of God. In fact, the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews would not have disagreed that this power belonged to God. Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, we're told, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. In 1 Kings chapter 17, you remember when Elijah called upon God to raise the son of the widow of Zarephath? I'll read it to you. Verses 21 and 22 of 1 Kings 17, Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and he cried to the Lord. He cries to the Lord because the Lord has this power. O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. God has that power. Ezekiel's great vision in the valley of dry bones probably one of my favorite visions in the entire Old Testament. God said to the prophet, you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and I raise you from your graves, O my people. In fact, there was an old rabbinical saying that went something like this. Three keys are in the hand of God and not given to any agent, namely that of rain, Deuteronomy 28, that of the womb, Genesis 30, and that of raising the dead. Ezekiel 37. The Jews said this belongs to God. This is his power. And so when they heard Jesus talk about the Father having this power to raise people from the dead, to give life to deadness, they would have said, amen, we agree. In fact, their entire hope as a people, and he's talking probably to many of the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. Their hope was that death would not be their end, that God would indeed raise them. But when he continues and he says, look again, so also the Son gives life to whom he will, they would have recoiled with rage. One thing for the Father to have that power, but they're saying to Jesus, how how dare you, how dare you say that you have the power to give life physically or spiritually? How dare you? Because only God can do that. And again, what is Jesus doing? He's saying to them, in as many ways as he can, I'm God. They don't want to hear it. So he says, okay, how about this? How about this? He's saying, I am God. In fact, he would display this power. We know this in his own earthly ministry. He displays it when he raises Lazarus from the dead and and the widow's son at Nain and Jairus' daughter. So he does this physically. But even more so, we know that Jesus Christ has the power to give spiritual life to dead people. 
He has the power to make people who are spiritually dead alive in him. Remember the offer that he made to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 4. Remember that offer. Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will what? Will never be thirsty again. That's eternal life. He says, I'll give that freely. In fact, he says in John 6.40, this is the will of my Father. Listen closely, saints. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will what? I will raise him up on the last day. The work of Jesus Christ is resurrection work. It is life-giving work to dead people, physically and spiritually. But Jesus adds, He says, not only am I equal to God, not only am I doing the work of God, not only has God granted me the power to give life, but you want the the, the pinnacle of this hardship for them? He says, God has given me all power to judge everyone. This is the power that was given to him. Now, once again, the Jews would have had no problem with God the Father as their judge. The Bible, that's Old Testament theology, what reveals God the Father as judge. Again, Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel 2.10. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The Psalms are riddled with this teaching. Psalm 82.8. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Psalm 96.13, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes what? To judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So the theology, this teaching of God the Father judging, is it permeates the Old Testament. Again, they would not have had trouble with God the Father doing that, but as soon as Jesus says, that, all that power, and this is what it says, all that power that God the Father had to judge, he's given to the Son. In fact, Christ has that now. So why would God do that? Why would God the Father hand all of his power to judge over to the Son? Why why would he do that? What is his purpose? God doesn't do anything by chance or whimsically. Look at verse 23. Why did he do that? Why did he hand all the power to the Son? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see the reason? It's so glorious. God the Father wants the Son to be glorified. God the Son wants the Father to be glorified. The Father glorifies the Son by giving Him the power to give life, the power to judge. God the Son loves and brings glory to His Father by coming to earth as a man and being perfectly obedient to the Father, and only what the Father wanted to do, even to the point of death on a cross. Both are engaged in glory giving. Both are fighting for the glory of the other. And in so doing, they're revealing their incredible love for the other, because that's what true love does. True love diminishes that the other might rise. And God the Father and God the Son are in this great, competitive, glory giving In fact, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, the great prophet said, God said through him, my glory I will not give to another. Another man, that is. But God the Father will give glory to the Son, and God the Son will give glory to the Father, and God the Holy Spirit will give glory to to them both. The Father joyfully gives glory to his Son because he loves him with an everlasting love. God the Son joyfully gives 
glory to the Father because he has that intimate love as well. What a model for us. What a model for us and how we ought to love God and love one another. How great if the great disputes in the church were fighting to glorify God in our sacrifice and our love and our mercy for one another. How great if we battled over caregiving. Stop loving me so much. Stop serving me so much. Stop being so kind and gracious to me. Stop praying for me so much. Let me bless you. I've never seen a battle like that. But that's the battle that we have here. God the Son outdoing the Father and His love for the Father, and God the Father outdoing the Son and His love for the Son, both glorifying, glorifying each other. That's the picture we're to have here for us. The Apostle Paul puts it so beautifully in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to this, Philippians 2.9. God the Father highly exalted Jesus and bestowed him on the bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. So he, he, does, he, he magnifies the Son, but then it ends to the glory of what? Of the Father. You go, what? Wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. Father, glory is just going back and forth, back and forth. And they've been doing this for all eternity. For all eternity. They've been exchanging glory. So what is Jesus saying here? It is so revolutionary. I'm going to encapsulate it here in a sentence. He is saying that if the Father and He are equal in nature, verses 17 and 18, equal in works, verses 19 and 20, equal in power and sovereignty, verse 21, and equal in judgment, verse 22, they're equal in all those things. Jesus is saying, if you're going to worship the Father, what? Then you ought to worship me too you're going to bow down to the Father that you know from your scriptures, and I'm equal to the Father in all these ways, then why are you trying to kill me? Why aren't you worshiping me? Why aren't you bowing down to me? Because Christ is saying in, in a few words here, I too am God. I am God too. Look at verse 23. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's pretty simple, is it not? That's a real simple teaching. You say you love God, you say you worship God, you say you honor God, and you do not worship, love, and honor the Son, you do not worship and honor God. You are worshiping or honoring a false God. You do not honor the Son, and you do not honor the Father. In fact, you dishonor them both. You cannot love God and not love Christ. They go together. They're, they're intimately tied. They cannot be separated. The Bible says to know one is to know the other, John eight nineteen. To hate one is to hate the other, John fifteen twenty three. To deny one is to deny the other, 1 John two twenty three. So to say that you love God, if you've ever said that you love God or you know God or you worship God, and to not love and worship and adore the Son, the Bible says it's impossible. It's impossible, and yet how many people today profess their love for God, their knowledge of God, their worship of God, and yet reject Christ? How many? Millions. Millions of people say they know God, they they worship God, and they do not know Christ. They do not worship Christ. Many of them hate Christ. The Bible is saying here, Christ is saying here, if you don't honor me, you can't honor the Father. And if you honor the Father, you better honor me because I'm God too. Again, if it's a lie, it's blasphemy, and he should have been killed. 
But if it's true, we should all bow down and worship him. And of course, you know it's true. You know it's true. He is God. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What word did Jesus bring? It was the word of the gospel. He brought the gospel. Right? He said, you're saved by God's grace through faith. Not by works. Not by the foolishness of trying to get in. He said that I am the Savior. And he offers this gift freely to all who repent and believe. This is the word. This is the word that he brought. But notice, it says, whoever hears my word and believes what? Believes him who sent me. Believe that the God of the Old Testament. Believe that Yahweh sent Christ. Believe that Yahweh indeed sent Jesus as his son to die for the sins of many. That's what the Father's plan is. It's not some separate salvation plan. We are to believe that Christ is the one who died for our sins. He is the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who did this great work on the cross for us. And then in this hearing and in this believing, Jesus makes it very clear that you are, present tense, made alive. That there's power, the Holy Spirit can bring about power in the life of of an unsaved soul through hearing and believing. It says he has, present tense, eternal life. You say, well, how does he have... How do we have eternal life now? How? Well, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? It's having a relationship with God the Father. You say, oh, no, I get it. If you, if you have a relationship with God the Son, and God the Son is one with God the Father, then you have a relationship with God the Father, and that is eternal life. It's knowing God the Father. And so Christ says, you have that now if you're in Him. And then the latter part of verse 24, he says, he does not, this person who has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, has passed from death to life. Is, is that where you are this morning? Do you have eternal life in God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son? Have you passed from death to life? If you have, you can't go back. It's a one-way road. Praise God for that. Who, do you want to go back? No one wants to go back. And you can't go back. If you've been adopted into the family, God doesn't say, okay, now you're out. Hello, son, no longer a son. Hello, daughter, once a daughter, always a daughter. Once a son, always a son. Can't leave the kingdom of God. What a great place to be trapped in. In the Greek, it literally says, I know I don't do this much, but this is important. It says, verse 24 again, He does not, this person who has eternal life, who has been saved, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from the death to the life. The article's there in the Greek, it's not in the English, but what is the death? The death is spiritual death. It's eternal damnation. It's condemnation in the lake of fire. That's it. What is the life? It's with God. It's eternal life. And so these extremes are being put out for us. And Christ is saying that in me, you can know the Father and have life and not Go to eternal death. Now the implications for the Jewish rulers here, the weight of these statements, if they heard anything that Christ said, Christ is saying, I have the power to make people alive. That means if you reject me, you will stay dead. Christ is saying that I have the power to judge all people. And if you reject me as your judge, you will be judged. Christ is saying that if you're going to honor the Father, then you must honor me. And if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. 
If you don't honor the Father, you have no eternal life. You stand condemned already as he's revealed to us. So the real, firm, black and white, absolute position on this, the reason there's so few of you here this morning, I'm being serious. There's no neutral ground with Christ. No neutral position. Your relationship with God the Father is completely contingent in your, to your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you know the Father and you have eternal life. If you do not know Christ, if Christ is not your Savior, if Christ to you is some historical figure, maybe a moral teacher, maybe uh, uh, this old Jewish rabbi in the past, if that's all he is to you, then you do not know the Father, and that means you do not have eternal life, and that means you stand condemned already. Everything turns upon Jesus. Everything. And that was the Father's plan. That's why he raised him up. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the plan. And that's in place. There is no plan B. So we've seen the Son doing the Father's will perfectly, glorifying and loving Him. And we've seen the Father honoring the Son by giving Him power to raise the dead spiritually and physically by giving him the power to judge everyone. I want to show you the last point here. If you're still with me, I pray you are. I pray you're not tired. I pray you're sober of mind. If you're not, verse 29 should bring it about. Verse 29 ought to bring it about for everybody who ever hears that verse, saved or unsaved. It is one of the more sobering verses in all the Bible. Look at verse, let's go to the last point. The son resurrects the dead. This power has been given to him as well. John chapter 5, verse 25 and following. Truly, truly, third time now. Three times in this passage, Jesus says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, listen up. Three major things you got to get. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Very important. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to exercise judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. Can you almost picture their faces? Do not marvel at this. Why? Why should they not marvel? For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That's the son's voice. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Truly, truly, Jesus says, and then he recapitulates. God the Father has given me the power of life. God the Father has given me the power of resurrection. And he actually identifies the first and the second resurrection here. We have so much um, analogy of faith here with scriptures complementing other scriptures. This first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. Look again. When he, he says here... Um, uh, I will say to you, an hour is coming and is now here in his presence when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's spiritual life from spiritual death. That's those who hear the gospel, who hear the call to God's holiness and the sinfulness of man and the need to repent. They'll hear it, they'll repent, and they'll believe, and what? They'll be made alive. That's the first resurrection. That's the spiritual resurrection. That's the one you've got to have first. Colossians 2.13. Paul
Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins, all of our trespasses. If you're alive in Christ, that's what happened. You say, well, I didn't know I was dead. Many don't. Who's dead? Who is spiritually dead? Everyone apart from Christ. Who starts off spiritually dead? Everyone, period. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. So everybody begins dead. So you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said, whoever hears my voice will be made alive. How can dead people hear anything? How can a corpse hear something and in so doing make themselves alive? How? Can't. What has to happen first? God must make that corpse alive so they can hear the voice of Christ and repent and believe. So the Bible teaches very clearly, actually. So who hears? Who hears the call? Who hears the voice? Our Lord's sheep. This is such a great passage. We're going to get to it in John 10, but I'm going to wet your power with it right now. John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus said, I told you, and you, he's talking to the Jews again, I told you, and you do not believe. That could have been like his entire ministry. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's names bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They heard the teachings, they saw the miracles, and they did not believe. Why? Because they did not belong to God. He had not elected them. He had not ordained them to be saved. Then Jesus says this in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who hears? God's sheep hear. What do they hear? They hear Jesus' voice. What happens when they hear? They're made alive. Hearing and believing is a Holy Spirit-induced awakening. When you hear and you believe, the Holy Spirit is making you alive, and you're made alive in that moment. It's an instantaneous, miraculous event, just like the lame man was healed instantaneously. When you hear the voice of Christ and you believe, you are made alive. Did you do that? No, the Holy Spirit does that. So glorious. All right. If that's true, if by the gospel of grace people hear and believe and in so doing are made alive, then we understand Paul's plea, his plea in Romans chapter 10 for the gospel to go out. He says this in Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Remember, you have to hear and you have to believe. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not what? They have not heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's why he says, go and preach. Go and share the gospel so they might hear and believe and what? And live. And live. Faith, I pray we never take for granted the fact that we are alive in Christ. I mean, we sit here today, what a glorious opportunity for us as a church to gather and worship God. But what a blessing it is. You were once dead. You were once dead and someone came to you with the gospel of grace. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you heard the gospel. You believed on Christ and you were made alive. That's the only reason you can gather in a church on a Sunday morning and be saved. He did this great work. Christ does this great work through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us life, and this life is forever. 
It's Jesus who makes us alive. When we were once spiritually dead, every day this is happening around us. It's happening today throughout the world in countries of names you don't even know. We don't even know and people we don't even know and, and, and people groups we've never heard of and languages we don't know of and yet the gospel's going out today and people are being saved today. How amazing is that? Because the world is a dead place. Souls that do not honor Christ because they do not honor Christ, they do not honor the Father. That is the first resurrection that Jesus is talking about but there's another one here. Believers participate in the first resurrection. His sheep hear the voice and they believe. The second resurrection, everybody's participating in. He says very clearly there, an hour is to come. This is the end of the age when what will happen when all mankind will stand before Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. He's telling him this teaching. He's explaining it to them. I'm sorry, 28. And he says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear this his voice, and they will come out. And when he says, do not marvel, he's rebuking them. They, they should know this. This great teaching on the resurrection of all human beings at the end of the age, it permeates the Old Testament as well. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so when Jesus says, do not marvel, he's saying, stop doubting. He he loves them. He wants them to repent and believe. He wants them to have life. So he's saying, stop doubting. The time is fastly approaching when all mankind will be resurrected and stand, he's saying, will stand before me because I am the judge. In fact, that word there, look again at verse 28. When it says, all who are in the tombs, it, the word in the Greek, pantes, it means all. All mankind, every man, every woman, every child ever born, every soul, every single person will be resurrected and brought before Jesus Christ. Everyone. All the dead will hear his voice and they'll rise up. You talk about power. <laughs> they said, he's saying to them, there are miracles that are going to blow you away. Here's one. The, how, how powerful is the voice of Jesus Christ? So powerful. He spoke and all of creation came into being. These are, these are wonderful and terrifying thoughts. This is Christ. This is your Lord. So powerful, he brought all creation into being. So powerful, the Bible says, he sustains every molecule. He holds everything together perfectly. He lets go just a little bit and everything comes collapse, crashing down. And then he says this incredible statement that Jesus Christ, with his voice, he will speak and every single soul, every single person will hear and they will rise. They will rise at this single resurrection. Everyone. the, The imagery is incredible. Men and women who disobeyed Christ their whole life will not disobey him in the grave. When he calls upon them in the grave, they will rise. But I want you to see something else. They're going to rise in one of two conditions, one of two classes. Look at the latter part of verse 29. Here, Here is a sobering verse. Share this with your family. Share this with your coworkers. This will take place. Those 
who have done good will be resurrected to life, a good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Two classes, two groups. So we know this, Pastor. You've been preaching this for years. There are the sheep and the goat, the left and the right. If we ever become callous on this, if we ever miss the magnitude of you being in Christ and therefore being brought before him to a resurrection of life instead of a resurrection of judgment, then our hearts have grown cold. Two classes, two groups. Now a cursory reading of verse 29 and a, and a bad hermeneutic, you might say what? Oh, I get how this works. If I've done good, I'm resurrected to life. If I do evil, I'm resurrected to judgment. I, you need to say no more, pastor, I got it. It's got to be good. It's got to be good. Except you know what? The Bible teaches to the contrary. In fact, the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament teach to salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, not as a result of works, lest you boast. So we know that can't be what it says. We know that the Bible is contrary to that. And we also know that we all start off evil and only Christ makes us good. So apart from faith in Christ, all we do is evil. There is no good to do. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul made this imminently clear. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will live by works. You've got to be made alive by Christ. So what, what does, why does he have good here, good, good deeds and evil deeds? Why is that here? You are revealed by what you do. Your works tell who you are. It reveals whether or not you have been made alive and the Holy Spirit dwells in you because if you are alive and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you will do good. But if you're still dead and there's no life in you, if you've made a profession with your mouth, if you've been baptized, if you go to church but you're still dead, then there will only be evil works from you. Simply put, we will know one another by what? By our fruit, by the way we live, by our deeds. It reveals our heart. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces what? Good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces what? Evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's inside is what comes out. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, good will come out. If you're still dead, what comes out? Death. That's it. So Jesus is saying before anyone is raised, before anyone comes before him in the end, the life you've lived here will determine that final end. You can't wait until after the fact. Everyone who stands before Christ in the end will know that he's God. But at that point in time, the classes will be distinguished. One class marked off by faith, listen closely, by faith accompanied by works, good works. To that person, a resurrection of eternal life. The other category, a class marked by what? Unbelief, accompanied by evil works. Their end, judgment, condemnation. James said it well, and so many of us do not like it. James 2.18, he says, you show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you. I'll show you that I'm saved. I'll show you I know Christ. Because good will come from within me. Because of the Holy Spirit. 
how convicting for the Pharisees. I mean, their entire world system was based upon their prideful external works. How convicting. How convicting. Their Sabbath laws, their new moon festivals, their sacrifices, their fasting. Christ is saying, it's all worthless. If you don't hear my voice and believe in my Father, all of it is a complete waste of time. And in the end, you'll be resurrected before me as your judge, not as your Savior. He exposes their evil deeds. The outcome of this second resurrection is contingent upon the first. If you're not made alive in this life by God, if you have not heard the voice of Christ and believed and put your faith in Him, then the outcome of that second resurrection will be one of death. It should cause every sober-minded soul ever born, saved or unsaved, to do a full stop and say, what did He say? What did He say? Did you hear what He said? Christ saying, I'm the judge. Everybody's raised. Everybody, every person from every culture and every nation, everybody, Adam will be raised. Adam will be raised. You're going to say, that's Adam. Every person you've ever conceived, every person you've ever read about, every great author, every great poet, every actor, every songwriter, every singer, they're all raised. And here we are, this mass of humanity standing before the judge in one of two places, saved or unsaved, believing or still not believing. So many people today, they, we ramble through life. In our culture, we ramble through, we stumble through with no purpose, no direction, no ultimate end. So many people still in our culture, they, they believe this horrific lie of evolutionary theory and they put their faith in that. They will come before Christ and they will say, Darwin was wrong. Christ is real. But it'll be too late. How many today are filled, have filled places of worship of all different kinds and they've, they've said to themselves, if I do good, then I can get in. And they base their salvation on a lie as well because we know you're saved by God's grace through faith. How many today in the professing church claim the name of Christ and they, they placed their salvation in a baptism or, or in church attendance or having eight Bibles and never reading them. False Christianity will not save. It's no different than the Pharisees. Deep down, we all know that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Deep down, every person knows that they are a sinner through and through, and they cannot save themselves. Science will not save them. False religion will not save them. Christ must save them. We all know this. Your family knows this. All your unbelieving family, all your coworkers, all those, all your friends who take these hard stands on other worldviews and reject Jesus Christ, in their heart of hearts, they know. And that's why they hate him. That's why the Pharisees hated him. They knew he was right. We know. We know. The resurrection of life comes through the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to take communion today and celebrate that. It comes by his soul suffering the travails of hell instead of ours. And it's offered to us freely, but don't think for a minute it was free. 
It's offered to us freely. We must take it freely as a gift. We must take it. But it was not free. It cost God everything. It cost the Father, remember, the Father who loved the Son so intimately that they do nothing separate. It cost Him His Son. It cost Him His Son's life. It cost, what did it cost the Son? It cost the Son everything as well. It cost the Son His reputation, His family, His people, His city whom He loved, His own disciples, It cost him his body. It cost him his blood. It cost him his father. This is the great work of Christ to redeem us. And it is the judgment against all those who refuse to honor him this day. We say, I will not honor Christ. All those who reject his saving grace, they will not come before a Savior. They will not come before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They'll come before him as the great judge The Bible says they'll come before a great white throne judge, a judgment, and that will be Christ. And Christ is so good and so just and so holy, he must judge every sin, and he will judge their sin, for they have no covering. They will be resurrected. But that is not a resurrection of hope. They'll be resurrected to judgment and eternal death forever and ever, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, separation from God, separation from glory. Horrible. Horrible. I know why we don't talk about it. I get it. But because we don't talk about it doesn't mean it's not real. It's more real than than anything we could talk about in the temporal sense. Christ will come again in glory. He will judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. So in the end, I'll close. God the Father is glorified in our Lord's complete and total submission to Him in exercising the redemption of man and doing the great work. The Son is glorified by the Father. The Father gives Him the power over life and death. The Father gives Him the power to judge all people. The Father seated Him upon a throne where He is seated now. He's not going to stay there though. Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, listen, and all the angels are with Him, what a sight. Then He, Jesus, will sit on His glorious throne here on earth. Verse 32 of Matthew 25, before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on the right and He will place the goats on His left. And then judgment Those who do not honor the Son, to death. Those who honor the Son, to life. It's not heaven for everyone. As so many fools teach, and they are fools and liars. It's not heaven for those who are good. It's heaven for all those who know God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. It's heaven for all those who have heard the voice and believed. For those who have been made alive. I'll close, I promise. God the Father, He revealed His love for the Son that we might know Him. God the Son reveals His love for the Father that we might know Him. And then by God's grace and the quickening of the Holy Spirit in your life, 
you are made alive, listen to this, to participate in this glorious exchange of love giving and love receiving in the triune God. Do you have any idea what your end is in Christ? It is so glorious. I could not preach for seven days straight and get close to this. God the Father is going to draw us in through Christ into that love and you're going to get caught up in it. So how do I know this? John 17, 22, and 23. If you've never read these verses with this seriousness, please do so. You want some hope? Listen to these verses. If they are not true, they're the greatest lie. If they are true, they're so extraordinary, we should meditate on them forever. John 17. Yeah, go there, please. John 17, verse 22. I want you to see this as well. Jesus is saying this to the Father. This is part of what we call his high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. And he says to God the Father, God the Son says to God the Father in John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them. That's you. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. He's calling us into the Holy Trinity to have the intimacy and the unity with God that is only known now between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, I'm going to call you into that. You say, I'm lonely. I don't have those relationships here. I dare say, you can have the greatest relationship you ever had here. It doesn't come close to this. This intimacy, this proximity... Look at verse 23. He describes it. I in them, that's you, and you, Father, in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I love them even as you loved me. You don't like intimacy, you better get out now. If you don't like compassion and love, you better run because your eternity in Christ is that. Intimacy in the unity of the Trinity, experiencing love that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity, being poured out on you. I'm amazed that it doesn't crush us entirely. And we must be completely redeemed or it would kill us, that kind of love. But it doesn't. It prepares us. So come before the throne this morning and confess your sins. If you don't know Christ, Too many we love will not. So if you don't know him, cry out for mercy this morning. It's a simple prayer. It's not a salvation prayer. Those are lies too. Cry out to mercy to God and ask him that the Holy Spirit would make you alive. That he quicken your heart. That you might hear the voice of Christ and you might believe on the Father who sent him and that you might live. You might live, not just getting through this life, not just trying to make it at the end, but I mean live. Because the promise that is set before us in Christ is true life, true love, true intimacy, and true relationship with our Creator and with one another. How glorious if this day is a day of salvation for you. Hmm? How glorious 
if your end is resurrection to life. I'll pray to that end, and for all those we know, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. You say that you desire none to perish, but that all should reach repentance. I believe that. I believe that you desire many more to be saved. Father, you know who is here this morning that does not know you. Save them. Save them. So when they are raised on that last day, it will not be to judgment, but to life. You know our friends and family who do not know you. Save them. We just we beg you, do that work. If you are pleased to use us to share the gospel, glorious. If not, fine, save them. Because in the end, Lord, it only matters if they know your Son. If they do not honor Him, they cannot honor you. If they do not honor you, they cannot have eternal life. I pray you would break our hearts over again for the lost. That verse 29 would become so real to us, Lord, that it both causes us to rejoice and be filled with terror simultaneously and to repent for of our lethargy, and our mediocrity, and to cry out for mercy. Give us that desire to petition for the souls of men, to seek for their salvation, to truly love our brothers by praying for them and bringing them the gospel. They might hear and believe and be made alive. We praise you for this most extraordinary passage where you've revealed your son to us. Press it on us hard, Father, that we might not forget that we might know Christ and in knowing him, love him more. We ask these things, Father, all of them. In, in the taking and receiving of this bread and juice, we ask that you would be glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen.